Hallelujah, he's risen. Communion shows his death. The death and the shed blood, the broken body of Jesus, it was done for us. This was the payment that God required for the salvation of the soul. Open your Bible, if you would, please, to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. As you know, uh, this evening service, we have the table of the Lord, a communion service. And I'm so glad that the Lord Jesus instituted the communion service. What a blessing it is. But you know, um, the communion service also has a bit of a humbling effect on us. The communion service has a bit of a sobering effect on us. The communion service has a bit of a reminding effect on us that this world is not our home. There are people that are living too much for this world. You, you know them. You probably work with some, maybe, I don't know, maybe some even live in your own home, I don't know. But there are people, too many people, that are living too much for this world. Ike Batista was born in Brazil in 1956, and he became a spectacular entrepreneur and a highly successful businessman who became a very wealthy billionaire. And we have a picture of him. You have that picture? Put that picture up, please, Glenn. There he is there, doing what every billionaire does, and that's they flaunt their wealth. And uh, there he is sitting on top of his uh, desk with that uh, million-dollar postcard view in the background there. So there is Mr. Batista sitting on top of the world. At 22 years of age, he managed to borrow $500,000 from investors, and he used that to get businesses going and buy businesses and start businesses, particularly in the oil and gas sector. By 2012, that's nine years ago, he was uh, considered to be the seventh richest man in the world. He had an estimated wealth of $32 billion. And he boasted one day he would be the richest man in the world. However, in just two short years after that, Mr. Batista managed to overextend himself and he ended up in bankruptcy. He lost everything and went right down into negative worth. And suddenly he found himself in court facing not only a lot of angry creditors, but he was also facing legal accusations of having made bribes to government officials. Well, four years later, in uh, 2018, Batista was convicted and sentenced to 30 years in prison. Isn't that sad? Now, stories of people who became very rich and then lost it all have been around for thousands of years. But these stories are still interesting and they never cease to amaze us. However, we're rather too quick to dismiss their warnings uh, as an example, their warnings of example. Because we say to ourselves, well, I'm not a billionaire, so it doesn't apply to me. But in principle, what happened to Batista could happen to anyone, even to people here tonight. 
1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. That's definitely in the New Testament, definite warning to all Christians. Mr. Batista trusted in his wealth and he boasted, thinking that he was secure. And in principle, we can fall into that very same trap. We could boast that we have a good job. We could boast we have a good income. Or we may not stand up, you know, on a Sunday morning and boast like that. But you know what I mean. We can be pretty proud, you know, like the, the peacock with all of the, the feathers. It does that apparently to attract the female feather, the female peacocks apparently. They have that big show, a fanfare of the colorful feathers that they show, strutting around like a peacock. And sometimes even Christian people can do that. When God's blessed us maybe with a good job, maybe we own a house, maybe we own a nice car. And so we tend to think, I got it, I've made it, I'm secure, I'm okay. And we don't realize that that trusting in that false elusive dream and that boasting could lead to our downfall. And we could lose our job. And that'll domino. We'll lose our house, we'll lose our car, we'll lose a lot of things. And then where will we be? In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, the Apostle Paul said, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Hey, listen, if God has blessed you with a good job, a good income, a nice house, a nice car, good food to eat, nice clothes to wear, good health, Thank the Lord for it every day. But realize that these things are in God's hands more than they are in our hands. At any time, God could just blow and it's all gone. Let's not make the mistake a lot of people do because too many people are living too much for this world. And that brings us to the communion service because the communion service reminds us this world is not our home. The communion service reminds us that if it weren't for Jesus, we'd have nothing. The communion service gives us opportunity to draw in close with our loving Savior. Now with your Bible open at 1 Corinthians and chapter number 11, I'd like to read a couple of verses here. Um, verse 24 well, I'll go, I'll go back to 23. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. Here's the Apostle Paul telling the Christians at Corinth where he got this from. He got it directly from Jesus Christ. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Now something that we, we need to remind ourselves of, folks, is 
We are not under law. We're under grace. Now, being under grace doesn't mean we can just run out willy-nilly and do whatever it is we want. That's not right. Being under grace is, is great privilege, but there's responsibility as well. We have freedom under grace to do what we should do. Under law, the Old Testament believer was under law and was mandated to do certain things, but he had not the Holy Spirit within him. And so he had constant struggle trying to to do the things God was asking him to do. Since the day of Pentecost, now we studied that this morning, didn't we? The Holy Spirit was freely given to all believers. If you're here tonight and you're born again, you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. What a gift! Praise the Lord, we've got the the all-powerful Holy Spirit who can, who can do anything, and He knows everything. There's nothing that He cannot do or does not know, and He's living inside of us. And He's there to help us to do now what we should do, because there's always things that God wants us to do. Now we have no excuse because we've got the power of God in us to be able to do them. But we're not under law, we're under grace. And communion is not part of being under law. Communion is not part of how we get to heaven either. Some people were taught, and maybe some of you here this evening were taught, that unless you partake of communion, or maybe in your case it was called the Mass, Unless you partake of that on a regular basis, you can't possibly even get to purgatory, let alone heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches, though. The Bible doesn't teach us that the way to heaven is through the communion table. It's not. That's not what it's all about. It would would be like you saying, well, I've got to get to work. Uh, Boy, it's time for me to leave home. I've got to get to work. Where's the toaster? The toaster. Oh, yeah, I need the toaster to get to work. Are you sure? Of course I am. Give me the toaster. And so we unplug the toaster and we give it to you. And then you sit on it and say, okay, giddy up. Let's go. Get me to work. (laughs) I'm out there, my friend. You're sitting on a toaster. You're not sitting in a car. The toaster's not meant to get you to work. The car, maybe, yes. But not the toaster. It's not designed for that. The communion is not designed to get anyone to heaven. That's not the purpose of communion. The cross is what gets us to heaven. Jesus died for my sin and your sin. He was dead, buried, and rose again. Amen? I got a few amens that time. I think all Christians could say amen to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Folks, he's not in the grave, right? Yeah, he's alive. Death could not hold him prey. He burst the bonds of death, broke those bars asunder. Hallelujah, he's risen. Communion shows his death. The death and the shed blood, the broken body of Jesus, it was done for us. This was the payment that God required for the salvation of the soul. It's an interesting thought, but if I was the only lost, separated sinner in the whole world, and all the rest of humanity was righteous, in order for me to be able to get to heaven, Jesus would still have to come and die for me. 
But of course, it's just a thought. Because when you think of it, well, all right, who's going to beat him with a cat of nine tails? Who's going to compel him to carry his cross? Who's going to drive the nails into his hands and feet? Who's going to set up this spectacle for all to see? Who's going to jab him in the side with a spear? Well, no one. You see, if I was the only lost sinner. But the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's what the Bible teaches, all humanity. You know, babies are such a wonderful invention of God, and we love them. And even if they're, you know, with their little screwed up faces as they're crying, their little mouths open, ah, you know, they're crying, that's all right. You know, they're still sweeties, we still love them. But you know, they're born with a sin nature, you know that. You do know that, right? Parents, you know that, don't you? <laughs> you see it, don't you? And, uh, you know, the Bible says we go astray from the womb. All have sinned. Sin really is a nasty business. It's not a cutesy, you know, pootsy kind of thing. It's nasty. It's what damns men's souls to hell. And Jesus had to leave heaven and come and pay the penalty himself for you and for me. And the communion, it's not part of salvation, but it is part of Christian growth. It's part of how we continue to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Participation at the communion table, believe it or not, is a command of our Lord Jesus Christ. Although we're not under law, we're under grace, and yet he still requires this of us. But not for salvation. It's like baptism. It's not for salvation. It's as a public record, a public testimony of affinity with Jesus Christ. In many parts of the world where they practice different religions, if a family member receives Jesus Christ as personal Savior, turns their back on their family religion and receives Christ as Savior, well, that could be um, you know, a real big storm cloud over the family and there could be a lot of fighting and so on. But if that family member goes and gets baptized, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, then all of a sudden, whoa, they've crossed the line. And in at least two world religions, they will literally hold a funeral for that family member. Supposing it was a son. Even though that son is still alive and healthy as can be, they will hold a funeral and they say, our son is dead. He's gone, and they will not even recognize his existence on earth. That's very true. Baptism doesn't get anyone to heaven, but it's a command of the Lord Jesus to show our closeness, our affinity with Jesus himself. Communion is something like that too. It doesn't get anyone to heaven, but it's a command of our Lord. He gives us two commands, right? Or at least we call them ordinances. Say, what is an ordinance? An ordinance is an order handed down from the boss. That's an ordinance. These are not sacraments. A sacrament, the idea of a sacrament is to help make you sacred, to add little brownie points to your account. A little more sacredness, a little more sacredness. That's why they say, oh, you have to have these things in order to get to heaven, to make you sacred. That's not what it's about. You may as well ride your toaster to work tomorrow. So, the table of the Lord pictures his death and it's given to us as a command 
But Jesus does not enforce it with fines or penalties. Jesus does not say, well, if you don't do this, then, oh boy, I'm going to beat you up. Oh boy, you're going to lose. Oh boy, you're going to have to pay through the nose. Jesus doesn't do that. We are under grace. We are not under law. Back under law, if they didn't do certain things, yes, there were penalties. Ho, 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 some very serious ones as well. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he wrote about the table of the Lord in a sermon. And here's what he said. We have attained the liberty of the gospel, and we are not called upon to observe days and months and years, nor to border our garments with certain colors, nor to trim our hair by rule. Neither are we called to practice diverse washings and purifyings, or to observe laws and regulations amounting to a continual round of rites. The free spirit dwells in us. To us, every place is hallowed. Our religion is not the outward and in the matter of meats. We call nothing common or unclean. We have ordinances, it is true, but they are few and simple. They are but two and each of them is instructive and easy. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, which are for the Lord's people only, are easy of observance and are for our help and comfort, but are by no means burdensome. These are not laid upon us as yokes, but given to us as privileges. Neither are they enforced by such a sentence as this, the soul that forbeareth to keep the Passover shall be cut off from among his people. Gospel ordinances are choice enjoyments enjoined upon us by the loving rule of him whom we call Master and Lord. We accept them with joy and delight. In keeping these commandments, there is great reward, but they are not presented to us as matters of servitude. So in Spurgeon's typical way, he was telling us baptism and the Lord's Supper are wonderful benefits that we get to enjoy. It's not like laws whereby if we don't obey them, then we're cut off you know, from amongst the, the, the crowd of God's people. Well, why, if we're under grace, <coughs> we're not under law, why... If we're under grace, why would Jesus give us a command to do this in remembrance of him? If we're not under law, if we're under grace, not under law, then why do we have a command? Why is it a command? Well, I'd like to suggest a few things to you. And would you take your Bible and turn to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah? Jeremiah and chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. We'll be coming back to Corinthians there in a little bit. Jeremiah is an easy book to find. Jeremiah 31. And I want to suggest to you a few, a few simple reasons as to why we have this command. Number one, know this, that every command of God is for our benefit. Know that right off the bat. Give God the benefit of the doubt. God does what He does and tells us to do what He wants us to do for our benefit. Now, with your Bible open at Jeremiah 31, I'd like you to 
read verse 3 out loud with me. Jeremiah 31 and verse number 3. Read that out loud. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Take your pen or pencil and underline those words, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Do you not remember that Jesus literally carved us into his palms when he took the print of the nails? He has an everlasting reminder. Those of us who get married, we like to wear wedding rings as a reminder and as a testimony to others. Hey, I'm spoken for. Hey, I found my soulmate. It's a reminder to us every time we look at it, every time we touch it. We ought to be thinking of our soulmate. The Lord Jesus, in the palms of his hands, took the nail prints which he chose to keep after his resurrection. And the nail prints in his feet and the, the wound in his side, he chose to keep those. Why? For himself? No. For us. For us. They're constant reminders. I don't know if Jesus in heaven, when he talks to the Father, that's prayer, you know. I don't know if he puts his hands together. But if he does, there's the reminder all the time, all the time, all the time. Jesus' full-time ministry right now is prayer, intercession, interceding for you and for me at the right hand of the Father. And he has in his hands the print of the nails. But know this, number one, everything, everything that God asks us to do is for our benefit. Number two, please go to the New Testament book of John and chapter 14. John and chapter 14. Point number one, every command of God is for our benefit. Point number two, the act of obedience is a tangible expression of our love for Jesus Christ. Now, John chapter 14 and verse number 15, read it out loud together with me now. If ye love me, keep my commandments. The Lord Jesus is asking us in this fashion, if you love me, if you really love me, then do what I ask you to do. We've already learned, number one, that everything God asks us to do is for our benefit. Jesus would never ask us to do something that was going to harm us or hurt us or cause us you know, irreparable loss or something. He's not like that. Everything he asks us to do is for our benefit. And number two, we show him tangibly our love when we obey what he says. Jesus does not want forced obedience. He wants grateful, loving obedience. Big difference. You can obey because of fear or you can obey because of love and desire. And we see that all the time on the roads of Surrey. People drive the way they want to. Zoom, zoom, regardless of what that little metal sign says until they see a vehicle with two cherries on top. And all of a sudden, do you know what I'm talking about? That's the difference. Driving 
under fear <laughs> or driving the way you want to. Uh, you know, the Lord Jesus is looking for love. That's what he's looking for. One of the churches of the seven churches in Revelation, you remember in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation, the seven churches? The first one was called Ephesus. And it was a great church in many ways. They were doctrinally correct. They got it together in many ways. But Jesus said, well, I have some, somewhat against thee. You remember what he said? Thou hast what? Left thy first love. And Jesus is supposed to be our first love. And here's a church that was so busy doing churchy things, they forgot about Jesus. It could happen. It happened to them. Hope it never happens to us. Uh, go to the right, would you please, to 2 Corinthians. Now, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll, we'll get there. We'll turn back there. But go past that to 2 Corinthians in chapter number 9. And we, we have this verse here, and it just underscores what we're talking about in this point number two. That the act of obedience is a tangible expression of our love for our Savior. You'll see it again, this principle, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and I'll read for you verse number 7. It's talking about giving. Of course, verse 6 says, He which soweth sparingly shall reap sparingly, he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully, every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. When you give your tithes and your offerings, God wants you to be able to do it with a happy heart, a cheerful heart, a thankful heart, a heart of gratitude and love for what God has done for you. Lord, the very least I can do is I can tithe my income and I can help support your heroes, the missionaries, the very least I can do. If you have an unsaved financial accountant, they'll tell you, they'll pull their hair and they'll say, what? Don't do that. Don't give away your profits. Are you crazy? Don't give away like that. You need that for yourself. You need everything you can get for yourself. Don't give things away. Unsaved financial people will tell you. But God is telling us here, He's no man's debtor. If we so sparingly, that's all we're going to get back is sparingly. If we sow bountifully, that's what we're going to get back is bounty. God will make sure of it because God is no man's debtor. I've been proving God on that point for over 46 years. It will soon be 47 years that I've been proving God's word at giving. I've been tithing since before I got saved. And God has never, ever, ever failed me. So, for, for what it's worth, there's my measly 47 years of testimony to God's goodness. But what God is looking for from you and from me, and not just in the area of giving, but in the area of living, He's looking for loving obedience. The Lord Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. I'll give you a few commandments. I want you to keep them. And so as we love Jesus, you see, we we will keep His commandments. Quickly, number three. Obedience tends to gender more obedience. That's good. If you're obedient in this area, chances are you'll be obedient in this area over here. Some of the great, great servants of God, men and women, who are really great, wonderful servants of God, they're so obedient. How'd they get that way? They started over here. 
They started with obedience in smaller things, and then they became obedient in bigger things. You see, obedience tends to generate more obedience, and that's something good. Obeying in one area makes, us, makes it easier to obey in another area. Number four, reason number four, is uh, as to why if we're under grace, remember we're answering this question, if we're under grace, why would Jesus command us to observe the table of the Lord? And the fourth reason is that we do it in remembrance till he comes, because he's coming back. I want to remind you, Jesus is coming back, and we do this in remembrance of him. So, A, it's keeping Jesus himself in our minds. B, it's keeping his redemptive work and what he did on the cross in our minds. Number three, it's keeping his coming in our minds. He could come back today. Boy, there's great hope. Some of you may not have the nicest looking Monday to to look forward to. It could be that you're not really looking forward to tomorrow. Maybe something at work or school or who knows what. I'll tell you something. Tomorrow my wife is leaving me. Yeah. She's going to fly far away to a place far away called Edmonton. And there she's going to help her 100-year-old mother to move into a new little apartment. And I'm happy for her mother and I'm happy that my wife can help her mother, but I'm sad and my dog Charlie is sad that she's leaving us. So I'm not really looking too much forward to tomorrow when I have to take her to the airport and hug and kiss her goodbye and get back in the car with Charlie and drive, you know, slowly back to an empty house, right? I'm not looking forward to that. But she's coming back on Thursday. So I am looking forward to that. So Monday, yeah, I'd rather sleep through it. But Thursday, I get to go pick her up. So I'm looking forward to that. But tomorrow, maybe, maybe you're not looking forward to what's going to be facing you at work or school or something. That's where the thought of Jesus' return can comfort us. He could come back tonight. He could come back early tomorrow morning. He could come back tomorrow at noon, tomorrow at evening. He could come back anytime. And the communion table helps remind us we remember him till he comes. So that's good. And the fifth reason, it provides us with a way to keep short accounts with sin. And let's be honest, we get our sins forgiven by Jesus. But as we live day by day, Sometimes we dabble in the stuff. Sometimes the filth of the world seems to cling to our heels, to our clothing, to our hands. We need to wash that. We need to keep short accounts with sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's good news. So the table of the Lord provides us with a way to keep short accounts with sin. Some churches, they have a communion service once a week. I was talking to someone just recently 
they go to a church that has a communion service every Sunday. And I said, well, we try and have a communion service every month. And they said to me, well, oh, should do it every week. Well, how do you answer that? Well, you go back maybe to the New Testament church where they had a communion service every day. And that's how you answer that. Oh, you have it only once a week? You should be having it every single day. Now, there's a comeback. The Bible doesn't tell us how often to have it. We just feel that once a month is great for us. It seems to work wonderful. Some churches have it once a year. I can't imagine that. That's a beyond my thinking. I think I would want it more than that, but we do try and do once a month. So anyhow, it does provide us with a way to keep short accounts with sin because a proper relationship with Jesus Christ at the communion table ought to produce revival in our hearts. As you approach the, the table tonight, I mean figuratively because you're going to keep your seats and the table will sort of approach you. But as you approach the table in your heart, there ought to be a sense of respect and awe. There ought to, there ought to be a sense of nothing between my soul and the Savior. That's revival. We need revival on a constant basis, folks. We do. That's something we need every day. We need revival every day. That's what we do. We need to examine our hearts and judge the sin within us. You see, let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we'll just point out a couple things. Verse 26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till He come. Verse 27 gives a solemn warning. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, Notice that, underline that word, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That means you crucified him. So how can a, a saved person be accused of crucifying Jesus? It's not the saved. The church of Corinth was a mess. They had saved and unsaved in their services partaking of the table of the Lord. Unworthy means there's no worth. Unworthy, nothing worthy. There's no worth. There's no value. In your home, what do you do with the stuff that has absolutely no value and no worth? What do you do with that stuff? What do you do? Garbage. You throw it away. Right? You get rid of it. Now, Jesus isn't going to do that with his children, but he is going to do that with unsaved people because there's no worth. So, Paul is saying very straightly, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily or in an unsaved manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Folks, it's like they're being held in contempt of court. It's as if they drove the nails in and, and pushed the spear in his side. Unsaved people who partake. Verse 28, But let a man examine himself. You say, what does that mean? Well, over in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, it says, examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Do you know for sure you're saved? Do you know for sure if you died, you'd go to heaven? Or is there a big question mark there? Because if there's a big question mark, you might not be saved, and you, therefore you should not partake of the table. This is meant for saved people who know they're saved. That's what it's meant for. 
So, verse number 28, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Verse 29, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, there's that word again, in an unsaved condition, eateth and drinketh damnation. That's a strong word. Eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The Lord's body, you could say, well, that's the church, and that's true. And the Lord's body, you could say, that's the body he that hung on the cross, and that's true too. But unsaved people, they have no understanding of what they're doing. If you're here tonight, and you're not born again, or you're not sure you're born again, don't partake, because this stuff will kill you. Now, that doesn't mean it's poisoned. It doesn't mean that at all. But it means that if you partake, and you're not saved, God will hold you in contempt and he will bring the judgment of damnation upon you. You say, wow, that's serious. Wow, I agree. That's serious. So a solemn warning is given. But you know, there's also a solemn warning for born-again Christians who are living in sin, not making it right, not confessing it, but yet still going ahead and partaking. And I don't know if there's anyone like that here tonight. Chances are there's none. But if you're here tonight and you're saved and you're involved in a sin that you're not ready or willing to give up, you ought not to partake for your own sake. You see, it goes on. It says, verse 30, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. That means they're dead. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. So if you and I act as the judge, the judge, jury, and executioner, as they say, concerning sin in our lives, if we'll get alone with God and say, God, I, I admit to you, I, I did this, I shouldn't have done that, I went and, you know, if you confess your sin to God, not to a priest, you confess your sin to Jesus Christ, and you yourself, you condemn, you say, what I did was wrong, Lord. It was wrong of me and you do that, then God won't have to do that in your life. But it's when we don't do that, and we say, nah, it's just the way I am, and ah, everyone's doing it. God says, no, it's sin. And then God will have to judge that, and who knows what God will have to do to get our attention. So it's very important that we keep very short accounts with sin. If you sin, boy, you confess, you get that thing looked after right away. You say, how soon? How about like while you're doing the sin? How about like right the nanosecond when you finish? You confess that. Because generally, Christian people tend to know when they're sinning. Sometimes you get caught up in something and you know the emotions and you do something, you say something, whatever. You bang, you confess that before God. If it involves another person, if you've injured or hurt another person in your sin, you're going to need to make that right. If you've hurt someone with your tongue and you've cut them to ribbons, well, tonight you tell the Lord how sorry you are and you ask Him to forgive you. But you still got to clear it up with the person you hurt. And so when you leave this place, then you get them on the phone or you go visit them or you do something where you say to them, listen, I'm so sorry what I said, what I did, it was wrong, would you please forgive me? You ask their forgiveness. If it involves someone else. 
quite a chapter, don't, don't you think? So verse 32, he says, but when we are judged, we're chastened of the Lord. So that means when we don't judge the sin in ourselves, then God has to do it. And so when he, we, he judges us, we're chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. There's security for you. Even though you're not obeying the Lord and you're doing things you shouldn't, you're still secure. You're still his child. He won't drop you and let you go. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. Don't be in a rush. The table of the Lord is a wonderful picture of the death of Jesus. What we need to do is we need to go to the Lord right now in prayer. And so, let's take a minute and let's bow our heads and Thank close you our for eyes. watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.